Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. And welcome to another gripping instalment of Cinelit. The sun has set on summer, the nights are drawing in, and lightning is crackling in the air. We are now firmly in Halloween territory, so we thought we would take a look at one of the iconic institutions of British horror, a brand so popular, so influential, that in many ways it's become its own genre. Of course, we are talking Hammer Horror. My name is Adam Marsh, and I am your host, and I am joined by my co-host, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? Really good, thanks, Adam. And on home turf with this today, Hammer, uh, one of my favourite film companies. And I emphasise the word comp- company there, not studio, which is Hammer are often called a film studio, which they never were. So uh, there's a lot of people that will be listening to this that will get upset if we use the wrong terminology and say certain wrong terms. So uh, be on your best behaviour and uh, make sure you've done your homework. But uh, yeah, I mean, Hammer, I, I, I've sort of grown up watching their films, managed to catch a few of, of the sort of late entries and revivals at the cinema even, in, in sort of 1978, 79, 80, um, some of the sort of early 70s work they did was still doing the rounds on cinema double bills. And then through through Derby cinemas, the Metro Cinema and now Quad, we, we've had Hammer revivals as well. So uh, um, it's been great to see them on the big screen. It'll be lovely to have a chance to talk about them today. Cool, but we're not alone, Daryl. We are joined by another expert. Not me, obviously. I'm I'm just a simple, simple film lover. But I'm joined by another expert, Mr. Kevin Lyons. Hello, Kevin. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. Very pleased to be here. It's um, a little bit like Daryl. I'm in good company here because it's had the same story with Hammer, really. Sort of growing up in the the seventies, catching catching them on those Friday and Saturday night screenings that they used to have back in the day. The Friday and Saturday nights back in the seventies and eighties were what made us the men we are today. So now you know who to put the blame on. But you know, they, this where they used to show Hammer films relentlessly over and over, and not that we were complaining. You know, it's uh, it, it's, it's one of those interesting things. Obviously, I was I was born in nineteen seventy six, the year the very final Hammer horror movie was released from the original company almost said studio there daryl almost said studio <laughs> the original company released in 1976 <laughs> but uh, so, so i don't have those memories of of warm slightly drunken the pubs kicked out let's go home 
the uh, Hands of the Rippers on tonight, we'll watch that. You know, I don't have those those comforting warm memories of Hammer, but um, for a whole gen- for two generations, they they are the final word on horror, for, uh, particularly British horror. They were very important, you know. They they were the best education you could ever get in the genre was the fact that television used to show what were then seen as uh, fairly recent films, which are now seen as very old films, but were, were fairly recent at the time. And uh, and I well remember, actually, there was one Hammer film in particular that they didn't show in my ITV region. I sent a videotape to my dad, who lived in North Wales, to record it for me. Sadly, it was lost for a vampire, and I kind of wish it got lost in the post when I <laughs> finally got to see it. But there you are. It's uh, one of the few I really don't like. But yeah, that's how uh, that's how it worked back then. You know, not everything was on demand. We had to wait. We had to be patient and uh, getting terribly excited when the radio and TV times turned up to see what Hammer films they were showing this week. So I was saying it's one of those things about the modern modern generation is like everything is so accessible. You can see stuff, but if you go back ten years, it's less accessible. So if you scroll through Netflix and try and find a Hammer film on Netflix. You're not, you're not getting anything that. really, or even on, or even on, I think there's a few on Amazon, but again, mm-hmm. not a lot. Um, so it's getting harder and harder for classic cinema to 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 get through to a younger generation, despite the access being so easy. It is. I'm not entirely sure why that would be the case. I, I suppose it's partly to do with just the sheer volume of material that's available on streaming services. You know, I've got I've got them all. I'm, I'm as bad as everybody else. And sometimes I look at Amazon and just looking at the horror films on Amazon, I'm thinking they've added about seventeen this morning. Where am I supposed to find the time to watch all of these? It becomes overwhelming. And so, if you've got something that was made before your mum and dad were born, it probably seems a little less enticing than something that was made right here, right now, and sort of you hope will speak to you as a as a generational thing back then we didn't have the choice you know we, we had three television channels and we watched what we were given we didn't have that thing where we could just go and switch our computers on and there was the entire history of, of cinema at our finger almost at our fingertips and you know may, maybe it just gets a little bit lost because people are thinking i need to see what's new rather than what's what's old yeah. which is a shame a shame it really is now, Kevin, Kevin, you mentioned the lustre of vampire there in not not exactly glowing terms. Now, what uh, what Adam and myself are planning to do over over the coming months as as one element of of the Cinelic podcasts is to cover Hammer films uh, across a number of of podcasts mm-hmm. and take little segments of of what the company did and uh, and examine them across uh, the course of an hour or so. So, uh, um, and you'll be delighted to know that we're not starting with the Karnstein vampire films. <laughs> so we're, 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 kick, we're kicking off really at um, what I guess is, you know, could be called year zero for the British horror film. If it isn't, of course, we, we could go into the, the whole sort of history of what came before. But, uh, but really, you know, it was day one, year zero, um, all started with the first of what we're going to be talking about today, which is Hammer's seven Frankenstein movies. Seven, definitely seven, Daryl, isn't there? There are seven, <laughs> yeah. It's, and I don't think there's much contention about that, although there was the TV thing, Tales of Frankenstein, wasn't there? I was going to say, where, where do we where do we stand on that? Possibly well, pro- we don't, possibly we just move on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've mentioned but, um, it, we've done our bits, let's move yeah. on, yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I suppose what we've got here is um, uh, there are seven films, but I think 
it does start getting a little bit complicated when you look at what those seven films are, because we've got five directed by the great Terence Fisher, who was Hammer's number one director, certainly of, of their horror output. And for me, Fisher's five films tell a story arc. They're, 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 it's like one big film. Um, and then you've got these two little sort of adjuncts to that. One is a daft sort of carry-on type comedy called Horror of Frankenstein. And the other, which came a little earlier, is with Peter Cushing, who'd starred in, in the Fisher run. Right in the middle of that, Cushing starred in um, Evil of Frankenstein, which we, which we know well, um, which was made by a different director, Freddie Francis, and doesn't quite fit into the continuity of, of the Fisher films, if, if indeed they have a continuity. This is something we'll, we'll go on to discuss. So I think what we're going to do today is um, to look at the five Fisher films as, as, as a block and, um, and then comment on, on these two little offshoots. Um, and I think that the less said about horror of Frankenstein, the better, maybe. But we have to talk we, about it at all. Well, in, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how we go for time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, now, for, for me, I, I don't know that there's ever been a British cinema series like The Fisher Frankensteins. It's almost unique. And I, I was thinking about this in, in preparation for today and thinking maybe only something like the Harry Potter series has exhibited the same sort of scope and, and, and narrative and attempt to, sell, to tell a single story across a number of years and several films. So uh, your, your thoughts on that as a Hammer expert? Uh, the whole, the whole is, are Terence Fisher's films, do, do they work as a sort of group? As they a- sort of do. They sort of do. I think they, they had a little bit of a thing where they kept changing the, the the character of Frankenstein. That you know he started out as a kind of arrogant, self-obsessed sort of not a mad scientist. I've I've never believed that the Hammer Frankenstein was mad. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was just bad. I mean, you know, he was just an awful man, really. But then you get these kind of weird little moments later on where he shows real tenderness and sympathy towards people. I'm thinking here mainly of uh, Frankenstein created woman and Frankenstein must be destroyed, where you see a slightly different side to him before he goes back to being this sort of awful monster, much, much more monstrous than the monsters he created. So there was a, there's a slight sort of, you have to do some mental gymnastics to try and fit this man together, but he's a complicated man. He's a complicated character, but I think you're right. They do sort of work together as, as a one big story, even little details like in the last film, Frankenstein and the monster from hell, the fact that his hands have been burned. Yeah. And at the climax of Frankenstein must be destroyed. We see him being carried off into the flames. So they don't make a big point of it. They don't sort of say, oh, yes, do you remember that time when you were carried off into the flames and you burned your hands and all the rest of it? They just say, you know, his hands are burned and we put together the story for ourselves. And that that was a bit of a hallmark of the series, I think, that they kept leaving these little little links between the films, but they didn't belabor them. They left us. They trusted us to sort out what we wanted to take from it. Did we want to see it as one big story or were we quite happy to just go along on a Saturday night to your local Odeon and have a good time with a horror film? It was up to you, you know, and I, I really... That was one of the things I liked about Hammer. They trusted their audiences, which is rather wonderful. Sure. 
I, I, th- I think it's marvellous that they leave those little gaps and just offer little hints of what yeah. might have happened. Because you as an audience member, if you're watching the films in order in particular, um, are actually making your own little movies inside your head. I suppose the classic example is at the end of Revenge of Frankenstein, uh, Mr Cushing, the Baron, Baron Frankenstein, he's, he's, he's been killed and he's revived in a body that looks like his own. So it's the it's the one time his experiment actually goes correctly and works, <laughs> and he's not done it, his assistant's done it. So there's this yes. tremendous irony there. But then, of course, what happens is, the in, in the coda of the film, we see that he's set up a practice in Harley Street. And then, of course, there's six years pass until yes. Evil of Frankenstein, and a full eight years before we get Terence Fisher doing another movie as part of the, the ongoing arc. And... A lot of people have said, a lot of fans of Revenge of Frankenstein have said, wouldn't it be great to see Frankenstein of Harley Street, you know, <laughs> uh, as, as a, 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 an unfilmed third movie? But as you say, the, the, another great case in point is, is the burned hands in, uh, as, as a follow-on from Frankenstein must be destroyed, taken into Frankenstein and the monster from hell. And of course, it then affects the plot of that fifth film, the fifth and final film, because he's got burnt hands, he can't perform his experiments. And again, yes, yes. he's back to relying on assistance. Exactly. Somewhere there's, there's, there's waiting to be done. There's like, you know, like with, with Doctor Who, they had all those books and audios that fill in the gaps between yeah, stories. Yeah, like the big finish thing. The big yeah. finish. It feels like there's, there's, uh, there's some, some money to be made out of filling in the gaps in the Hammer films, doesn't there, really? That you could have that Frankenstein of Harley Street, that you could have, what, what was he doing? Yeah. Because he's, he's a very driven and obsessed man. He's not the sort of man that could have an experiment go wrong, then go away for six years and just sort of sit there by the fire smoking a pipe with his feet up. He would want to be doing something, no matter how insane it might appear, He's, he's that sort of character that just needs to keep on pushing the boundaries of, of what, what he believes is science. Yeah. And so, yeah, he must have been up to something during those years. What was it? I'd love to know. So if anybody out there, you know, he's feeling particularly creative, there you go. You can have that one on me. Off you go. It did strike me when, when I was watching me watching these films again, that um, just obviously their orig- origins in, in the sort of that universal, let's do what Universal did, mm. we'll have our own... Frankenstein, Dracula, Mummy, and, and did that very successfully in massive money-making <laughs> bonanza for many years for Hammer. But I thought with the Frankenstein, I found it quite interesting because they couldn't rely on the, the makeup from the original Universal horror films. They moved the focus back to the Doctor. Yes. So all these films yeah. are about the Doctor rather than the monster. Yeah. Uh, it was, which, it was a different monster every time, wasn't it? And in fact, in yeah. Evil of Frankenstein we see a monster that we'd never seen before that he must have created at some point in the past. And in fact, Evil of Frankenstein, if I, if I remember the story correctly, that Universal had told them when they make The Curse of Frankenstein, Universal had said, nothing we can do about it because it's in the public domain, but you do not make your monster look like Boris Karloff. Absolutely must not look anything like our design, which is why we ended up with the, the Christopher Lee design, which is marvellous and great, wonderful. But then when, because, um, you know, Hammer was always making films in uh, co-production with American companies. They, they couldn't make these films on their own. They just didn't have enough money. So they were always making them with Warners, Universal, Columbia, whoever was there to give them the money. And when they made some films for Universal and Universal saw, this is not bad, this is a bit of a money spinner, isn't it? They changed their mind and said, yes, you can use our makeup design if you like. And so they made Evil of Frankenstein, where he doesn't look like Boris Karloff 
which is really weird because I was saying at the time, oh, yeah, we can do that. We can use the universal yeah, yeah. makeup now. And you look at it, he looks more like the golem than he yeah, looks they, like. Yeah, they've gone for this weird sort of, yeah. ball, like, like he's got Boxy a shoebox sort of on head. it. So, yeah, it is SpongeBob yeah. SquarePants, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's why Evil, I think, doesn't fit in with the rest of the film because it was almost like... Um, we got a chance to sort of start again here with 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 the different makeup. Yeah. So we'll start I, again and we'll keep the monster going. But no one really liked the monster. They do bring in the sort of like the more sort of like um, uh, science fictiony, yeah. scientist stuff for that film, don't? Well, I think Frankenstein was always a, a science as much science fiction as it was horror. To be honest, I think it's always it's been that sort of mad science thing, not mad scientist, but mad science. You know, Hammer had dabbled with that before they made Curse of Frankenstein. They'd done the four-sided triangle and stolen face, which had got this, you know, highly advanced plastic surgery. So there were no strangers to that. And, of course, Quatermass and X the Unknown. And so they got a long sort of history of science going awry. And that's been one of the, the great sort of key themes of science fiction right the way back, you know, as far back as we can, as we can think, even with Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, science was, you know, running amok. And so, yeah, I mean, Frankenstein is as much a science fiction film as it is a horror film, absolutely. Yeah, I, I guess I guess if you take this right back to the source, which is uh, Mary Shelley, you know, now now just over 200 years old, mm. um, the original novel, is that horror, is it science fiction? I'd, I'd argue it's philosophy. I, I, you're probably right, because at the time, nobody used the term science fiction or horror. No, it was a book, a philosophical book, about a fantastical subject. It only became horror or science fiction or whatever we want to call it many years, decades, centuries later, you know? So, um, so yeah, Mary Shelley wasn't writing a horror novel. She wasn't yeah, writing... I've just reread. I've just reread it in preparation. That's how, that's how much research I've done for this one. <laughs> I reread the book as well. Wow. And um, it's, it's fascinating that it's, there's hardly any this, this science in it, but it's not science. It's like... Yeah, science wasn't really understood as the science we know today. I mean, it's like, it's like that Arthur C. Clarke thing, isn't there? That any, um, any scientific advancement to a sufficiently undeveloped society will look like magic. I'm paraphrasing, but you know the, the phrase. 200 years ago, any science seemed like magic, even to the scientists, let alone to a, a writer you know, Mary Shelley wasn't a scientist, she was a writer. Why would she know about science? You know, most scientists didn't understand science at the time. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think Frankenstein creative woman taps into that a little bit with the metaphysics and the... It does, with the, the soul transfer. Religion and science, yeah. It? yeah, yeah. Well, of course, we've got uh, we've got Martin Scorsese, no less, as as an expert on that one. Who, uh, when he was asked by the uh, British Film Institute to pick um, films for a season at the National Film Theatre in 1987. Everyone was expecting him to go with his his favourite Italian neorealist classics and everything, (laughs) and the the Leopard and films like that, and films that he's talked about in in depth. And he did, you know, he picked a lot of those movies, but um, Scorsese's always said that he, he grew up watching that uh, brand of colour gothic horror that that was on cinema screens in New York, York in, in the 60s. And it was Roger Corman movies, the Edgar Allan Poe films. It was Mario Bava films being imported from Italy. And it was the Hammer films. Mm. And Scorsese picked a Hammer film and he picked Frankenstein Created Woman 
to the surprise of I'm sure most people at the at the National Film Theatre, and the, and his 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 often quoted uh, comment on on why he picked Frankenstein Created Woman out of the the batch that we're talking about was he said that if I single this one out, it's because here they actually isolate the soul, the implied metaphysics. Are close to something sublime, and um, what it, it's it's very interesting. You you were talking, Kevin, about how um, Baron Frankenstein across these films is occasionally a, a benign figure and a helpful figure. He's he's often a ruthless figure and a vicious figure, although he himself claims that he's not a murderer, even though we know he is. You know, yeah. he claims in at least two of the films he 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 says I'm not a murderer, and and uh, or implies that. Mm-hmm. But um, what what we get in in um, uh, Frankenstein Created Woman is he seems to almost lose sight of the fact that he's a scientist, and he sort yeah. of steps over. Into into and this this you can see is why it appealed to a, a good altar boy like Mr. Scorsese. You know, for one film only, he sort of seems to accept religion or religious concepts. Yeah. In in he approaches those in the way that he approaches hard science. And um I'm I'm fascinated by that and how Hammer managed to get away with it and create a narrative within that film. And I I, I wondered about your thoughts on that. It is the odd one out among that that collection. Well, in the other one, he's a very hard-nosed scientist. He's very much the sort of rational, modern man, you know, modern for his time. But yeah, like you say, in this one, he becomes he almost turns into a mystic in this one. And that brings out a softer side of him. In Frankenstein Created Woman, it, it, for all the horrible things that happen in it, it's got rather a sweet little love story going on in the background, which he's helping to facilitate. He becomes a right softy in this film. And that maybe was intentional. Maybe that was because he'd been through so many things that he'd done so awful. He had some kind of epiphany with, you know, he discovered the soul. He discovered his soul, maybe. And, you know, he was willing to sort of just for a moment put aside his scientific training and scientific beliefs to try and, you know, aid this couple. Of course, it inevitably goes wrong. Everything Frankenstein does goes wrong eventually. But, you know, maybe he sort of had an epiphany somewhere. In one of those missing stories, maybe he just realised for a moment what I've been doing is so awful. Yeah. That there is something else, maybe, you know. And again, the, the sort of missing link there between this and the next movie is possibly the fact that because it all goes wrong yet again, yeah. he loses his he use, loses yeah. his newfound faith. Because he becomes even nastier in the next film. In Frankenstein must be destroyed. He is at his most manipulative. That he's, is him at his peak. Yeah. He's yeah. vile in that film. I mean, you know, the, the things he does in that film, we all know what he does in that film. He is the the, the worst that character ever becomes. So yes, maybe he's been so disillusioned by what happened. When he let that sort of softer side go, you know, and he's sort of like, I'm gonna help these people. I'm gonna I'm gonna believe in a soul. I'm gonna be more more of a spiritual person. It all goes horribly wrong, ends in tragedy, death and destruction, as it always does. And that just makes him 10 times worse than he was before. You know, and I can kind of understand how that would work. You can kind of feel that almost in yourself. You know, if you'd gone through that, you sort of let yourself go and you think, right, I'm going to believe in all this nonsense and it goes horribly wrong. 
I think you'd become quite cynical and bitter. Not to that level, I would hope, but yeah, you would certainly become very cynical and bitter. Well, there's echoes of um, the original, obviously like God, I am a God from the original um, universal line. So maybe it's echoing that as well. And maybe figures... I've tried bloody everything else to make this thing bloody work. Yeah, Why not give religion and love yeah. a try? That's, that's a great point, Adam, because I think what happens in Frankenstein Created Woman is he doesn't, he still doesn't accept God. But no. I, I, th- I think what happens, he thinks of himself as a God in scientific terms. And I think in Frankenstein Created Woman, he begins to believe in himself as a spiritual God. And yes. he still rejects the idea of anyone above him, who a higher power. You know. What's also interesting about the film is, and to go into a little bit of British history here, um, uh, five months before The Evil of Frankenstein was released, um, Harold Wilson had a very, very surprise um, election victory in 1964. Late, the Labour Party and a left-wing Labour Party, to boot, scraped an election victory. And then um, a couple of months before um, Frankenstein Created Woman was released, the Labour Party called a snap election two years into their term, and they won by a landslide. And of course, we're right in the middle of the, the World Cup's about to happen, um, swinging London, the Beatles are top of the charts. We've had the British invasion in America, the Rolling Stones and the Dave Clark Five are all over America, you know. And um, Hammer tap into, as they often did, they were often a very left-wing leaning uh, uh, sort of company in terms of the script writing, certainly. And they do that again with Frankenstein Created Woman. They're tapping into what's obviously the sort of national zeitgeist at the time of left-wing politics and and, and hatred of, of the rich and so on. Because what we get here as the villains is a trio of proto-Bullingdon boys. They are the worst characters in any Hammer film. They are beyond any the, kind of they're redemption. The monsters. They're the monsters the, the, in this film. That horrible scene. That there's not many. You know, there, there are a few Hammer films which actually are genuinely moving. And I'm thinking Hands of the Ripper here is a, a really good example. But I think Frankenstein Created Woman is really moving. That horrible scene where they're out, you know, singing. Yeah. You know, about how she'll never lose her virginity and find like, while she's in bed with the man she loves. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, it's so awful i mean these men are just so appalling that they it's one of the great sort of visceral qualities of that film is they they get everything they deserve for people who haven't seen the film the character we're talking about here is um, a facially disfigured and uh, disabled mm. physically young girl who as, as you say is in a relationship but is the focus of all of the taunts of the local tops and they just don't relent do they they're, they're appalling. I mean, they, they, you know, look at bully in a dictionary and there should be a picture of these three men. They are horrible. From the minute we see them to the minute they sort of, you know, get their comeuppance, they are unrepentant, revolting. I mean, it's almost like a caricature. It's almost sort of like taking some of those earlier sort of hammer tops, you know, the things like in Plague of the Zombies and the Kiss of the Vampire and so on, and just ramping it up to 11. And, you know, say, right, this is right. And, yeah, you know, you mentioned the Bullingdon Club. You look at them now and you think, oh, my God, these people are real. <laughs> yeah, and they've, they've, all, they've, always, they've always been here, yeah, yeah, and always will be. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, sort of Hammer had their finger on the pulse with that one. And it's, it's, it's quite a damning indictment of that kind of, of that class of person, that sort of entitlement, 
and all the rest. And it's, it, yeah, they are the worst, most repulsive characters in any Hammer film, I think. They, sure. they make me angry. They they, I'm getting angry now thinking about them. They make my <laughs> blood boil, genuinely angry about them. But I think, I think it works quite well in the sense of that, you know, we, we've talked about how he's a bit more, about Frankenstein being more uh, sensitive in this movie and less horrible. It's like, maybe he isn't. Maybe it's just the same horribleness. It's just that yeah. next to those guys. <laughs> there are the people same. even worse. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe he, he looked at them and thought, yeah, I don't want to be like them. I want to do at least one good thing in my life and I don't want to be remembered like they're going to be remembered. Sure, because he is he is going through this this period where he seems to be accepting of spirituality yeah. as well. So, so he's, he's had some kind of epiphany there. And the, um, the, the plot's a very interesting one because, again, we we, we, we use the phrase the Frankenstein monster mm. and the monsters in in what, what would be the conventional clumping Boris Karloff monster in these films... It's, as you've said, Kevin, it's completely different in every one. And what we've got here is the young couple that we've talked about there. They they both die and one is executed and one, one kills herself. And Frankenstein transplants the soul of one into the body of another. So you've got this half man, half woman hybrid. He, he, he manages to correct the facial disfigurement mm-hmm. and also gives her it gives her a, a blonde uh, tint <laughs> as well. Uh, yeah. Turns her sort of chestnut um, uh, lank hair into this gorgeous sort of blonde do, you know. And, and suddenly the monster in this film is the, the conventional Frankenstein monster in this film is is a gorgeous blonde, you know. And and what what a, what a terrific idea. And the uh, most sympathetic uh, of the monsters. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, I think we're always meant to have some sympathy for the monsters because they, they never asked to be who they are. They, they, you know, they didn't want to be there. But this one is absolutely, totally sympathetic to the monster. Yeah. What she's been through, what her boyfriend's been through, who's, you know, in there as well. And, yeah, they, they, they make her look absolutely drop-dead gorgeous so that we sympathise even more. You know, had she been a sort of, you know, Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee type monster, I don't think the effect would have worked. We needed her to be this sort of avenging angel type figure. Adam, as a relative newcomer to Hammer, what what do you, what do you think about the five monsters across the Fisher films? Well, I think like most people, you have that image of the, is it um, Jack Webb, is it? Is Jack, Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce, that's it. The, Jack the, Pierce. the makeup guy, yeah. Jack Pierce's is, is designs for, I think, are just so prevalent across all pop culture for the last hundred years. You know, it's, it's ridiculous that you can't go into any Frankenstein project without seeing the bolts and the neck and the head and the, and the scar. So I think, with, with, I think what the Hammer films, as I mentioned before, what the Hammer films do so well is that they shift the focus so successfully to quite frankly, stunning performance by Peter Cushing across those five films, that you don't really think about the monsters. It's not a focus of what the films are about. Yeah. They're just the final product of his mania and his drive and his his, 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 his passion or paranoia or craziness or whatever to, to, to get his job done. What will happen if it actually works with Frankenstein? I don't know. I mean, if, if he actually did it, he's, not, he's going to put his feet up and retire Probably not. He'll probably go on something equally crazy. But I don't know what he'd do, you know. So I think for me, it's less in these films, it's less... I don't really think about the monsters too much. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as we've said, at the end of Revenge of Frankenstein, the second movie, he becomes his own monster. That's his right, assist, yeah. His, his yeah. assistant 
saves his life by mm. making him into a Frankenstein monster, which, of course, is a wonderful gag in a way. In the, a, a, there's the irony that his assistant can do what he can't and <laughs> do a successful experiment. The other wonderful irony, and I'm sure the scriptwriters intended this, was, was that um, for years and years, viewers and fans and readers and anyone encountering Frankenstein stories in whatever form have been confused about mm. which one's Frankenstein, which one, you know, should we call the monster Frankenstein? And a lot of fans say, oh, no, you must not do that. And some people take another school of thought and say, well, you, you can, or call him the Frankenstein monster or the Frankenstein creature. And here, of course, Hammer addressed mm. that directly by saying, look, We've now got this figure in these films who's going to be an ongoing figure in the films, and he's Frankenstein and the monster. Yes. So, yeah. uh, you know, deal with that. Um, on, on Revenge of Frankenstein, I wanted to make another point about how the, the series as a whole, and I think it's typified in Revenge of Frankenstein, but it, across the, the whole arc of the series, one overriding uh, element seems to be Frankenstein finds himself pitched into a world because he's a baron, but he's always on the run. He's not like Dracula, who's sort of permanently ensconced in his castle at the top of the mountain, looking down on the peasants, which, again, is a great hammer political thing, a great social statement, from, as, as, as we see also in films like Quatermass 2 and Plague of the Zombies. They were very, very left-leaning in, in a way that um, uh, Matthew Sweet identified with Ealing films as well. You know, They never sort of broadcast the fact that, oh, we're, we're making left-wing movies. They're not Ken Loach, you know, but it's, it's always there. And one thing about Revenge of Frankenstein in particular, and the Frankenstein series of Fisher as a whole, is that the setup always seems to be um you've got frankenstein pitched in the middle of it although he's an aristocrat he's not got one base because he's always being chased from one european village to another and so he's always having to set up somewhere new at the start of each film but wherever he goes you you've got policemen priests burgomeisters all trying to tell him what to do and he, yeah. he won't listen to them and he reacts against them uh, so there you've got a, a, a modern equivalent is Effectively, you know, we're, we're living in Michael Gove's world there. You know, it's it's don't listen to experts. Don't listen to this evil baron who's come in and set up because he's he's, do, he's doing this science stuff that we, we don't like to talk about because we like our local burgomeister or the local police chief getting his bung mm. at the end of the week, you know. Well, Fra Frankenstein, I think... It has, has always had that, hasn't it? It's always been there in Frankenstein, not just yeah. in Hammer, yeah. but in, it's become a kind of... I mean, we now know it's a byword for science. Yeah. It, it should have been a byword for bad science. Yeah. It's become a byword just for, for science. You know, we, we, we'll remember the uh, genetically modified foods. When they came in, they were Franken foods. Sure. You know, a, a term clearly coined by someone who'd never read the book or seen a Frankenstein film, because <laughs> if they had, they wouldn't have used that term. But it's become now that the, the idea of Frankenstein is just any science. Yeah. You know, it's any science at all, and it's not. It was it was meant to be bad science. And that, and how contemporary is that when we've got yeah. authority figures telling us again that all science is bad? You know, it's bad. Um, and 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 this 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 to me makes the the sort of torch bearing villagers in in the Universal Frankenstein movies and the sort of gullible guys swilling beer in Michael Ripper or George Woodbridge's pubs in the Hammer films. They're basically the fifty two percent. You know, and and to me, I, I, that set me to thinking. Well, what's 
what's Peter Cushing in the middle of all this? Yes. And I thought, he's, he's Chris Whitty. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the analogy starts to hold up, Daryl. When you get well, to that. well, I, I was then going to go on to say, well, what, what, what does that make the Frankenstein monster? Is the Frankenstein monster us? And I, I, certainly, it falls apart mm. at that point. I think, but uh, but I, I, I don't know. Discuss. <laughs> well, let, let's not forget that at the spoiler alert at the end of uh, Monster from Hell, there is a literal mob. Yes. The lunatics take over the asylum, yes. and there is a literal mob who tears the monster apart, literally sort of rips it shred, shred into shreds. I'm not quite sure how that fits in with your analogy, but in, I feel indeed, like it yeah, should. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, maybe maybe that's, that's part of the analogy to come. Who, who mm. knows? But Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, the final film in Fisher's arc, is, is such, a, such an interesting film. Because as you've said, the lunatics take over the asylum. You're suggesting that happens at the end of the film. I, I think it's ambiguous. I, I, I think lunatics may well have taken over the assignment <laughs> yes. before that film starts. And when, when we're given a few little clues and hints mm. that that may have happened, but uh, the, the, the script is brilliant and Fisher's direction of the script is brilliant because they, they, they are never overt about that until, until the end when the mob sort of rises up and destroys the monster. Um, but there's, there's, there's the strong possibility that Baron Frankenstein, who mm. appears to be sort of working as, as a doctor at the asylum, may, may well, and, and, and at the end of the film, he's actually filmed from behind the bars of a cell, uh, but the door is swinging open ambiguously yeah. as well. So even then, they don't do the obvious thing and say, oh, yeah, he's a prisoner, you know, it's is he or isn't he? And, and I think that applies all the way through that movie. And there's a love, lovely moment of ambiguity which ties in again with what we're saying about his character changing all the time. The, the moment where he bursts in on the director who is, you know, having his wicked way with one of the, the inmates. And he has this sort of moral indignation. Now, bear in mind that this is a man who in the previous film had committed rape. Yeah. But now, you know, in this film, he's now trying to take this moral high ground that you know, you you will not do that in here, and it's not like you say. It's not clear if he's meant to be an inmate or if he's just working there. But he's clearly running the place, mm. no matter who he is, because the director is terrified of him because obviously he's, you know, Frankenstein for all his faults, he's always the smartest man in the room. He's clearly a lot cleverer than this guy. Yeah, and one one thing Frankenstein always does, and he certainly do, has done in this film, is he he gathers information on potential yeah. enemies, and he can use that against them. He, again, that's a thread. Very that manipulative man. Yeah, very manipulative yeah. man. Most notably, I think in Frankenstein must be destroyed, where he's he, his levels of manipulation are astonishing in that film, where he manages to have something on everybody. Yeah, and can do, but yeah, you're quite right. He's it's like soaking it all up, and there's that. The beauty of Peter Cushing's performance, I mean, Adam mentioned earlier, you know, there's this incredible performance. We can't go for too much longer without sort of heaping huge amounts of praise on him. That, you know, he did that wonderful sort of stillness thing that I really love about him, where he's just sort of standing there. He'd be fiddling with his props because he always did that. But he's got that look on his face, that sort of, hmm, yeah, I'm taking all this in. This is all going in there somewhere and he's all sinking in. And it may not it may not get used in the film that we're watching. It may not turn up until the last few minutes, but it's always there. He's always sort of soaking up whatever he can use on people. And again, that's just all part of this sort of horrible character that he is, really. 
Yeah, but in, in some ways, that, that's interesting because that's one aspect where the audience actually ends up rooting for him. Again, oh, yes. because because these other people are more horrific than he is, <laughs> he is and, and they're really, really taking advantage of... of, of people of a lower social strata you know and that's something he hates he despises that oh of course um, and uh, he hates the class system and um well i wonder uh, if this is why it stood the, the test of time this series of films that you know it has got that sort of moral ambiguity that leaves us to make up our minds what we think is happening i think you could probably get a room full of people watching any of the the terence fisher frankensteins and they might come away with a slightly different accounts of what they've just watched and what it yeah. means because they, they leave just enough wriggle room for us to bring our own sort of, you know, fears and psychoses and prejudices and all the rest of it. But it's also the fact that it is um, so much about the class system. I think particularly in Britain, that's, I mean, that's still very prevalent. We don't talk about it as much as we used to, but it's there all the time. It's, it's there in the background. Yeah. yeah. And I, I wonder if that accounts for it, sort of one of the reasons why it accounts for the sort of the longevity of these films. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've, got, we've got Candyman on, on release at the moment, at time of recording anyway, and, and the, um, the, the, the remake of Candyman, and that's getting a lot of comment in the press and from fans and people that have seen it about how political it is. And, of course, the, the original Candyman was no mm. less political. Sure. But I think because we've got Jordan Peele and his team involved this time, that's really being sort of pointed up here. You know, the idea of this figure being conjured up out of nowhere and, and turning up to basically slaughter people who, who have called him up, but the people that call him up are often people that we don't like because they've done something wrong, you know. And that that's basically brings us back to the the idea of the the the, the toffs in Plague of the Zombies or these awful proto Bullingdon boys in Frankenstein created woman being killed off by the monsters or by by the um the the the, the characters the, the main characters that we're following in these films and we're sort of rooting for these death we want these death to happen you know of course, and, yeah, uh, yeah yeah and and I I I I really did did uh, as I was watching Candyman, I really did sort of think, oh yeah, this this is this is sort of doing what Hammer films were doing in in the mid sixties when they, they seemed to be at their political peak. Well, they they were always referred to as morality plays, weren't they? So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I wonder if maybe sort of social morality plays is what they actually were. You know, that they were sort of not so much saying something about religious morality as about social morality. Yeah. I think I think that's prevalent in in horror as a genre. I think that kind of uh, underneath the, the 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 little subtle hints towards either social or race or, or, or sexuality, all those are in there. You know, many many horror films throughout the years, way before many dramas and things like that. Horror was always playing in that little sandbox. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's often said about, um, you know, the George Romero zombie films mm. or about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that, that a, a, a lot of people simply comment about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a film about unemployment, you know. Yeah. And, and Hammer, Hammer made Quatermass 2 and Never Take Sweets from a Stranger as well. Mm. Two films where you could also say, well, they're films about unemployment. Mm. They're, they're films about... The, the dominance of the employer over the workers being able to exert certain pressures 
and having this control over their workforce and over the community at large because of that. And the, you then get sort of genre plots pinpointed into that. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre does exactly that. So, yeah, I think you're right, Adam. Horror does tend to... There, there isn't an awful lot of right-wing horror, is there, when you think no. about it? No. Well, I think possibly it's because horror and science fiction, they're both disreputable genres. They're not seen as being, you know, high art or anything, and therefore they're not dangerous. And so you can sneak through messages in these films because they, they're just pop entertainment, aren't they? They're not serious works. Or I think if you tried to make, you know, a, a, a political film from opera or something like that, there'd be an outcry, you know, everybody would be up in arms and out about it. But a horror film, who watches those, you know? So that's how they can sneak these messages through because, you know, it's a disreputable genre that has plenty to say and a fantastic stage on which to say it. And that's why horror and science fiction are, have always been political, always been political genres. So at Hammer, we're always quite good at reading the pulse of the mm. nation uh, throughout, uh, until they weren't, I guess. <laughs> they were always really good at that. How, how do we see that late 60s from, like, from, from Frankenstein created woman through to Monster of Hell, which is a, a monumental upheaval in the world of horror? Um, and what audiences want from horror? You obviously had Texas Chainsaw, you had um, the George Romero stuff. How how do these Hammer films reflect, and do they reflect that? Or well, as, as Kevin said, the, the film, the Hammer, the Hammer Frankenstein film, right in the middle of that period, mm. is Frankenstein must be destroyed, which you've 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 said is shows Cushing at his most ruthless, and and so yeah, I'd like to add to Adam's question there before we put this to you, Kevin. How how do you see Cushing's performance in Frankenstein must be destroyed, in in the the, the focus and in the, in the light of of Adam's question. Well, yeah, I mean, from 1968 onwards, the genre was toughening up, you know, and it was also changing quite fundamentally. 68, we had um, Night of the Living Dead, and we had Rosemary's Babies, which Rosemary's Baby, which was they were both very, very modern films. There was no gothic, you know, sort of fairy tale qualities. These were set in the world that we recognised here today, um, New York City, and you know. Part of America that we'd never seen before, but we recognised it as the Vietnam War. We always have done in Night of the Living Dead. And I think Hammer needed to toughen up a little bit at that point. And perhaps, you know, the, the only time they really did it was toughening up Frankenstein, turning him into this sort of monstrous figure. Also, I mean, we, we, we can't overlook the, at the same time going on with all of this, there was the, this sort of the rise of youth culture and the very big changes in youth culture, which I don't think Hammer ever really got to grips with. And I think they were trying to make Frankenstein in, in that film look a little bit like, you know, the, the sort of terrible grown-ups who were going to oppress the kids, although there weren't any kids in it because they, they didn't get that far. But they were trying to make him into that. You know, when they did try to make, you know, films about the kids, they were great films, but they were clearly written and directed by people who had never met the kids. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they didn't quite get it right. But I think in... in um, Frankenstein must be destroyed. He had to be harder. They couldn't have carried on with the softening up process that they'd had in Frankenstein Created Woman because the world of horror had toughened up. It'd become a very different place. And it just wasn't going to work to have this sort of this character who we'd been sort of programmed to distrust and dislike. And then suddenly we were being sort of led down this path of, oh, he's getting a bit softer. You know, he's helping out these young lovers, all the rest of it. 
that just wouldn't have flown in the wake of Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby, and certainly not, you know, by the time The Exorcist and things like that, where, you know, sort of people, horror films lost hope, I think, around that time. You know, the, the Hammer films always had a bit of hope. At the end, good always prevailed over evil, always, always. Sometimes it was a little bit ambiguous, but, you know, it was, that was, that was the fairy story. And now in horror films, that didn't happen anymore often often spectacularly abrupt as well i mean think of the oh, yeah. ending of frankenstein must be destroyed we've got a classic terence fisher fire you know people who don't know fisher's films they <laughs> usually end with everything burning down you know yeah. going right back to right back to the last page in 1951 you know and, and most of his horror films just end with the whole set being set on fire we get that in frankenstein must be destroyed and, and as we've said cushing is carried back into the burning embers yeah. of the house by this this raging inferno, by by the, the the monster who sort of hauled him over his shoulder, and bang, the credits come on screen. Yeah, yeah. No no chance for the audience to react or breathe or anything. It's brilliant, and I I, I think that abruptness actually adds to. I, th- I think that's done on purpose oh, as yes. a means yeah. of not allowing anyone to relax. Yeah, it's a final gut punch, isn't it? At the end, you know, they've dragged him off into the flames. And that's it. It stops. We don't know where he is. Did he? Did he make it out? Is he dead? What? What's going on? And so you know, audiences going out for a nice, cosy night out on a Saturday at the local Odeon, coming home thinking, "What? What's you know?" So in in that respect, it does kind of fit in with that sort of modern wave of horror film sensibility. Because think think of the ending of Night of the Living Dead. Oh, I mean, there's, there's nothing bleaker. Yeah. The problem is, I don't think Hammer then capitalised on that. No. I think they took their eye off the ball after that, and they had a spectacularly bad 1970, as we know. The one film that probably does have an ending that's similar to that would be Straight Until Morning, I think, yeah. which is just yeah. howlingly bleak at, at, yeah. on its final shot. But hardly anyone went to see it, you know. And those, so those, anyway. those that, yeah, those that did sort of came out thinking, well. Blimey, that was that was a bit bleak and not really like a Hammer <laughs> film, was it? Yeah. But uh, and they've they've sort of done the same with their their, their latest film, The Lodge, yeah. which which ends again in a, a sort of howlingly bleak fashion, and yeah. then just bang, and it's it's done. You know, as we've come back to Frankenstein, must be destroyed. It's occurred that um, we've given our opinion about how great Mr. Cushing was, but we've not talked yet. I think about the two great Frankenstein monster performances, mm. which are Christopher Lee in the original The Curse of Frankenstein and then Freddie Jones in the last 20 minutes of, of Frankenstein must be destroyed. For me, Christopher Lee is the Frankenstein monster. I know there are Boris Karloff fans who will lynch me. I can hear them building a wicker man downstairs and to, to burn me in. But for me, he is. He's just... Everything about him was right. That, that, that reveal is one of the great hammer moments where the camera kind of lurches towards his face as he rips off the bandages yeah i i always always remember and people will know this if they if they've read all the same horror books as me and you i think it was alan frank in one of his horror movie books in the 70s described that in three words he said it was a a rattling vertiginous zoom Yes, and that sums it up. In that <laughs> sums it up. And when you compare it to, you know, and I, lo- I love the Universal Frankenstein. Don't get me wrong; I absolutely love it. I love Boris Karloff, of course I do. But you know, in that film, he comes into the room backwards. Yeah. Why? Who? In, I mean, okay, so he's just been born and all the rest of it. But who walks in the opposite direction of your eyes, even when you're just born? I mean, you, you don't walk backwards into a room. It's, it's not a very good reveal. The reveal of Christopher Lee is stunning. And that makeup, when you see that face underneath the bandages, it is 
to this day, it's kind of stomach churning in a way, you know, it, it's much more visceral. I mean, I, again, I cannot emphasize enough. I love the universal Frankenstein, but my God, Christopher Lee looks like he was stitched together. Aren't there stories about people wouldn't eat their dinner with him in the cantina at Bray because he was still in makeup and he was making them sick when they were trying to eat? Yeah, isn't there? There's a famous photo, I think, of Hazel Court, who is actually having a, a cup of yeah. tea with him, isn't she? Or, or eating yeah. lunch or something. But but think about where Christopher Lee's career was at this time because mm. because the, the competition for this role, famously, of course, was Bernard Breslau, yes. who did later play the Frankenstein monster in Carry On Christmas in 1969 for right. TV. Um, and, and if that gives you a sign of, of what what his performance for Hammer would have been like, I think I think we looked out. But uh, but mm. yeah, but Christopher Lee was not in a not in a dissimilar position in his career to someone like Bernard Breslau at that time. Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't a star, was he? I mean, he was a jobbing he was, actor. You know, he, he was cast because because he was six foot four, not not because of his talents. But no, that's right. Yeah, but he he was just lucky that he he was six foot four. And he was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, they, they probably didn't know that at the time. They just cast him for, and then when they, they when they must have seen those first rushes, if they did rushes at Hammer, I don't know, when they looked at it and thought, bloody hell, he's big, but he's brilliant as well, isn't he? Isn't he amazing? It really is true. I mean, he, he, he plays the part like a man stitched together. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. his I mean, body I think, language. I think when, for me, it's Christopher Lee, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Echo that, you know, the Hammer films. But the others are following that, you know, and um, yes, it's, it's hard to follow that performance. But I think mm. comparing him and Boris Karloff is interesting. Boris Karloff looks like a still image all the time. In those movies, it looks like an iconic movie, barely yeah, moves. Yeah. Whereas with, with Lee, you feel like at any moment he's going to pounce on you. Yeah, like he's got you go, you know. Yeah, and there's, yeah. there's that energy about that performance, which is just... Uh, he, he's either going to pounce on you or he's going to fall apart. Yeah. Because, you know, the way he's moving, it looks like he's trying to keep himself together. Yeah, you, know? you, 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 can, you can sort of tell that he... he, he, he his his brain is telling him that he used to be somebody That's and he right. he yeah. vaguely sort of recognizes what an arm and a foot is yeah. and he's 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 learning how to reuse them and how to put it all together and he, he Lee really conveys all that it's an extraordinary i mean it's it's all done without a single word yeah. i mean it's all done with just body language and he still manages to get facial expressions through that makeup mm. and he's i mean you know if we didn't love him already i mean just go and watch that film and you can find out why we love christopher lee and peter cushing because in that film they are both magnificent you know really he had, a, he had a good couple of years there didn't he yeah. <laughs> from, from, from yeah. bernard breslau in an alternate universe what might have happened you know? we're but, sitting here talking about bernard breslau ruining hammer films yeah, yeah before yeah. it even started yeah i i think if i had to pick a favorite frankenstein monster and i frankenstein from 1931 is my all-time favorite movie mm. and i think Karloff's wonderful in it and i actually love that walking in backwards bit that he did <laughs> But I think there's one performance that beats out Boris Karloff, and it's Freddie Jones in Frankenstein yeah. Must Be Destroyed. Yeah. Here, what we've what we've had in Frankenstein Created Woman is is this weird hybrid of the the lovers who have the, their soul and body are sort of combined into one to go out and take revenge on the people that have driven them to their deaths. And what we've got here is it's it's almost the ultimate Frankenstein experiment 
we've got the, the brain of a top scientist placed into the body of another top scientist who Frankenstein has driven insane. Yeah. And then to cap that, we've got Freddie Jones playing this hybrid in, in a way that's almost Shakespearean. That moment when he goes to see his wife. Yeah. My God. If you can watch that and not at the very least have a lump in your throat, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I get quite sort of misty-eyed watching that scene where yeah. he, he's yeah. just behind that, that, that thing sort of talking to her. Well, he's so coy as well. He's, he is actually hiding behind that screen. That's right, yeah, because he doesn't want her to yeah. see him like this. Yeah, and he's just, it's so moving. It is actually, rem- and of course, you know, you, you've got Freddie Jones playing it. I mean, who else could have played that part? Yeah, he's, he's so way? good. And, yeah. and, and, and he's, he's on absolutely top form. I can, yeah. I can think of few films, if any, where he's been better. And, yeah. uh, and of course, the, the great thing is with that confrontation with the wife is we're in that situation where we as the audience know both sides. We know what's coming. Yeah. Neither character on screen knows. That's right. Yeah. Which makes it all the more unbearable, doesn't yeah. it? When we're yeah. sitting oh, there watching awful. it again. We, we, we're so sort of rooting for them, especially yeah. him. And we yeah. know what's coming. And he's yeah. like, it can't, it can't succeed, can it? It can't happen. Yeah. And we're, we're so willing it to, you know, as yeah. desperately willing it to, to work out for them. But it's, we know it's not going to. And, and again, I, th- I, think, I think that's why we, we talked about rooting for Cushing's Baron all the way through the series. But I think at the end, Frankenstein must be destroyed as he's hauled off into the burning yeah. inferno of the, the, the collapsing house. We're rooting for one guy at that point, oh, and that's absolutely. Freddie Jones. Yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that the is that the the, the 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 closest that it comes to that typical monster doctor relationship? That hammer came. It's in those final moments is where I, I, I'd, say it's, it's, I'd say it's the closest anybody has ever come to Mary Shelley. Yeah, and the relationship yeah. between the monster and, and the maker. Yeah. Yeah, people have tried to actually right. film. People have tried to do sort of authentic versions of that with the sort of long-haired monster reading philosophy and reading uh, poetry and so on, and all the scenes on the ice flows. And I think that finale of Frankenstein must be destroyed actually captures the essence of that better than any of the so-called authentic versions. Yes, yeah. yeah, I'd agree with that definitely. Yeah. Cool. Um, anything else you want to add to the legacy of Frankenstein, or do you think we're we're done? Well, we've 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 talked about the Fisher arc and and how that was sort of the Harry Potter of its day. We've discussed evil of Frankenstein, I think, enough as we we we've gone along. Do do we need to talk about horror of Frankenstein before we no. go? No, I don't never. think we do. No. I think no. I think it would no. end the session on a, on a on a note that isn't Freddie Jones carrying. Don't start me on horror of Frankenstein if you want to be finished by midnight. Trust me, I've I've got a lot to say about it. None of it good. So I think okay. yeah. So let's okay. let's let's end on the note of Freddie Francis and um, Freddie Jones being absolutely marvelous. I think so. So which which one of us three is going to set the house on fire and who's going to haul the other one over their shoulder and carry them off into uh, my my size and shape? Neither of you are going to be able to carry me. It'll take both of you. And I'd still I still do you damage. So I'm, I'm going to have to be the monster in this particular scenario yeah so well, as as we've said we love the monster so oh well, thank well, I'll, you i'll be the i'll be the villager with a pitchfork so <laughs> the oh there's always got to be a villager with a pitchfork always no matter no matter what yeah absolutely cool lovely well thank you very much guys for joining us it's been a delight been a pleasure. Listening to two experts discuss something that's obviously very passionate and closely to their, to their hearts. That is it from us today. We will return to horror in the next few months as we take another look at Hammer and its unquenchable thirst for blood. 
through its Dracula series next. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Take care.